Good morning. Well, my name is Brandon. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Sojourn Heights. And as he said, we're looking at a few verses out of the book of 1 Timothy today. 1 Timothy was uh, written by, by a man named Paul to a church, a church that was existing, that after they got started, they had some uh, what they call false teachers, some teachers that showed up teaching doctrine that was contrary to Christianity. It was a, it was a distortion of what Christians uh, believe, and Paul wrote this letter to counter some of what was being taught, which is why our passage today is going to correct and challenge some of the misunderstandings about Christianity both then and uh, now. Specifically, it's going to zero in on the nature of salvation and what its implications are uh, for us, for Christians, for how we're to live as individuals and how we're to live as a, uh, as a community. And so let's talk about it. Um, I, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I'm 41 now. I was 22 when I became a Christian. Uh, and so the, the word salvation or to save, it, it just, it wasn't like common language in my home, my childhood. It wasn't something we talked about. And if it ever came up, it, it never had religious connotations to it. it. It would be used in something like this, like the firefighter saved the woman from the burning house. But then uh, these guys befriended me. We became friends. We started eating Mexican food together, hanging out together. They took me to this Bible study uh, on a Monday night. Uh, and I remember looking around the room and just seeing people sing and the expression on their faces and uh, being drawn. And then the following week, uh, uh, the following Monday, actually, I remember just sitting in my bed going, if this is real, I'm in. If this is real, I'm in. And then after that, one of the guys said to me, hey, here's what happened. You just got saved. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't have a clue. I had no idea what he was talking about. But over time, this is what I came to realize, that the, the, the need for salvation, the hunt for salvation, uh, this is not unique to Christianity. It's not unique to Christianity, and here's why. We all agree something is wrong. Uh, everyone agrees something is wrong both in our lives and in the world. So if, the, if we're talking philosophy, um, ancient philosophy, the, the problem is this. Uh, death exists, and I'm no longer going to see my loved ones, and so we need a solution. If it's other world religions, it's, uh, th there's a spiritual knowledge that you need that you lack. If it's modern kind of Western secularism, if you will, maybe it's the existence of religion and the need to try to explain why that is. Everyone agrees something is wrong in the world, but we could also just look at our own lives. So I've used this example before. I'll use it again, though. Um, if I asked you to raise your hand, if you come from a family that's got some degree of dysfunction in it, my guess is everyone in the room raises their hand, except people with family in the room, <laughs> which is nothing but a sign of their dysfunction. It's a universal problem. Something is wrong in the world, and we all know it. And so while salvation and the need for it, the desire for it, it's not unique to Christianity, Christianity has a unique definition of what it is and what its implications are for us and the kind of people and communities that it creates. And so let's dive in and look at it, verse 12. I thank him, this is Paul, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. And so in our text, Paul is starting out with, this is who I am now. My life today, Christ Jesus has found me faithful, judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. This is who I am today, but this is not who I always was. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, though formerly, 
though formerly, in a former day and time in my life, though formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is starting out here in this text, opening up with this contrastive statement between who I am today and who I was before. Who I am today, this person that Christ has judged faithful, appointed me to his service, and who I was before, blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent of the church. See, here's the story of Paul. If you are new to Christianity, uh, wondering if you belong here, is this for you? The, The story of a man named Paul is a story that you need to know. Because the story of a man named Paul goes like this. He was an intellectual Jew, studied, educated, well, well spoken. And we at Acts 7 and 8, if we looked at that, it, it would show the story of Paul there when a man named Stephen was murdered. Stephen was the first martyr for his faith, the first person to die because of his faith in Christ that we know of. And Acts 8 1 says that, that Paul was standing there approving of his execution. But then we would hit Acts 9. In Acts 9, uh, Paul is heading to a gathering like this, trying to round up Christians, take them to the same fate that Stephen ended up with, and this is what it says. But Saul, that's Paul, his name would be changed later, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way that was shorthand for Christians, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, he went on his way. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul is on his way to a gathering of Christians where if he can find them, he can bound them and take them to their fate. And Jesus shows up out of nowhere, flashes the ground. Paul is radically converted, radically converted out of nowhere. And the story of Paul goes a murderer to teacher, persecutor of Christ and Christians to a servant of Christ, teacher to the church. And here's what we have to see, that Jesus did not He did not show up in Paul's life to take Paul and make him just a better version of himself. He he did not show up to Paul and say, hey, listen, I know you're a good man. I'm going to make you a better man. He showed up in Paul's life to upend everything Paul knew about the world and radically change him. Radically change him. And for us to understand how Paul felt about this, how he saw what happened to him, we need to talk about the word overflowed. Where it says, "Uh, this is who I was but the grace of our Lord overflowed to me. This word overflowed, the, the New Testament is written in Greek, we translate it into English for us. The word that Paul used, listen to this, this word is rare. In, in fact, to be honest, it, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament, and I only know of one other usage in ancient literature, only one that I could find. This word is rare, and it carries the nuance of too much. It means to be overabundant or to be excessive. So what Paul is saying is that when I look back at what happened to me, for me to try to describe it, I basically have to make up a word. Like what happened to me? What happened to me that I do not deserve? What happened to me that was so radically over the top 
that my native language can't fully describe it. I've got to make a word up. This is Paul looking at what has happened to him and marveling at the grace that's been given to him. Marveling at it. Doesn't celebrate, remembers, and marvels at the grace that has been given to him. Grace that upended his life, and this takes us right to the heart of one of the misunderstandings and false teachings that was happening, and is happening today, and it's this, that Christianity is a religion for good people. That what Jesus came to do was to take good people and make them good enough. What he did was he came, this is the misunderstanding, that he came and he took people who are religious and good and made them better and good enough. That is not what Jesus came to do. He did not come for good people. Paul doesn't celebrate his past, but he definitely remembers his past. And listen, if I look at my own life and I remember my own past, to be candid, I look at the college version of me and I go, I don't want my son to be anything like that. Jesus doesn't come to take us and make us a better version of ourselves. He comes to absolutely radically reorient and change everything about us. See, religion is not Christianity, not the religion for good people, because it knows that there is a unique problem for all of us that he gives us in verse 15. Let's keep reading. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to make good people good enough. He came into the world to save sinners. What is a sinner? What does that mean? Here's a definition for us. In the story of the first sin by Adam and Eve, we can see the essence of what makes a sinner. Disobedience to God's commands. In nearly all of the 70 times a sinner appears, it is plural and identifies a spiritual state that is understood without having to be defined. Sinners are those who are outside of saving faith in God and opposed to the divine will. Point being, here's what a sinner is. Sinner is somebody who is opposed to God's law. Corrupt at the core, from the heart, flowing from the heart is rebellion to God. Jesus did not come to make us better versions of ourselves. He came to take people like you and me, sinners, and make us followers of his, radically reorient and change everything about us. That sinner is a description of all of us. And I know that it can be offensive for, for somebody to say, you are a sinner and out of your heart flows rebellion naturally. Not saying that this is a category of people who are sinners and people who are sinless, that this is the effect of Adam and Eve being passed down to all of us. And one old theologian said it like this, he said, the seeds of every sin known to man are in every human heart. This is an honest assessment of the world, of us, of our own hearts. The seeds of every sin known to man are in every human heart. This is the roots flowing from Adam and Eve to all of us, and Paul knew that this is me. This is me. This is who I am. There's no getting around it. This is who I am. And then Jesus came into my life and radically saved me, radically changed everything about me, and Paul is marveling at this grace that has redefined his story, and Paul wants you to marvel at it with him. He wants you to marvel at the grace that was shown to him, and therefore the grace that is shown to you, and he wants you to marvel at it. Do you? 
Do you? Do we? Are we a people who marvel at it, who sing songs like Christ in me and just see that as the floodgates of mercy and grace being opened and poured out on us? Do we see, do we look at Christ and see and marvel at the mercy and grace that has been poured out on us that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me? Like you and me, floodgates of heaven opened for us. Do you marvel at it? It doesn't stop with what you're saved from, though. He keeps going to what you're saved into. So let's keep reading. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, there is so much going on in these few verses that we're looking at that we could take days to talk about it. I feel like we're going to only scratch the surface here, but for what we're saved into, it's hinted at twice in here. Not hinted at, it's spoken of twice in here. Once in 16, once in 17. Do you see the word Christ in verse 16? The word Christ in there? In describing Jesus, the the, 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 the usage of the word Christ in Timothy, 15 times in 1 Timothy. In the New Testament, 514 times it uses Christ to describe Jesus. But here's what we need to know. That's not his name, it's his title. His name is not Jesus Christ. He is Jesus who is the Christ. He is Jesus, the long-awaited Savior, the Messiah, the Savior, the King to come. Which is why he goes into, in verse 17, to the King of the Ages. Christ is our king. And every commentator I could find um, said something along these lines. Verse 17 is an unexplainable doxology. It just comes out of nowhere. I don't, I don't know what it's doing there. It doesn't really belong there. It's a break in the flow of thought. But I think they're wrong. I don't think it's a break in the flow of thought at all. I think it's a statement about what it is that we are saved into, that what we're saved into is a transcendent kingdom, a kingdom that transcends all kingdoms on the face of the earth. So do you remember when Jesus was being questioned by Pilate, and Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Yeah, I'm a king, but my kingdom is like no other kingdom you've ever seen before. It is a kingdom that transcends all kingdoms on the earth. This is obviously a theological statement about Jesus, but it is also a radically countercultural statement. Because in the day in which this is being written, you, you didn't have presidents, you had kings. You had palaces and kingdoms. Not president, kings and kingdoms. And he's saying you're not just saved into an ethereal, spiritual kingdom. You are saved into an actual kingdom, a kingdom coming into the earth. A kingdom that at times collides with the kingdoms of the world and it transcends the kingdoms of the world. And how do we know that it is a kingdom coming, that it's not of this world, but it's in this world? It's for this world? Here's how we know. One of the ways we know. Jesus did not sit in heaven and open the doors to this kingdom from there. He came. He came as a baby, born as an outcast. He took on flesh, real human, in the world flesh. And then he died on a cross as a criminal having real nails driven through real hands, real thorns being pressed into a real head. He came into this world to bring this eternal kingdom to bear on this world. He didn't open the door from heaven. He opened the door by coming to the earth. 
living and dying for you and for me as a king who would climb up a cross. As a king who would climb up a cross, that we are saved from our sin into Jesus' kingdom because the king left his throne and died as a criminal on a cross. And because he did, we can live chapter 2. First of all, this is verse 1. Well, as I read this, I'm going to read all seven verses. I want you guys to count the number of times you see the word all, but don't count the first one. Count the rest of them. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of God, knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So how many times do we see the word all? Four. Four times. That's the repetitive refrain theme running through this, that God's heart is for all. All. All to come to know that there is one mediator, one person mediating a relationship between God and men, and it's Christ. One king who came to mediate a relationship between God and people, one. And God's heart is for all to know that. All. Every single one. All means kings and peasants. It means those at the top of society and those at the bottom of society, that Jesus did not come for a particular class of people. He came for kings. He came for peasants. Bring that forward to today, and it means he came and gave his life for the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. He came to save engineers and addicts. He came to save teachers and traffickers. It means he came for religious Jews and non-religious Gentiles. Nowhere is that more clear than the fact that this educated Jew named Paul was writing this letter and said, I am a teacher, preacher, proclaimer to the Gentiles. Bring that forward to today. It means Jesus came to save Mormons and Muslims, atheists and Hindus, those who grew up in the church and those who still don't feel like they belong there. All means men and women. You will not find another religion in the ancient world that gave dignity to the women, gave dignity to women the way that Christianity did not even close. And when it says, I came for all, it includes men, it includes women. So what does this mean for us? If God's heart, if God's heart is for all, this desire of God is for all to come to know the knowledge that there is one man, Jesus, who came to bridge the gap and stand between God and men. What does that mean for us? How are we to live well, the text draws a direct line between two things and God's heart being made known for all. Look, look back at verse 1. There's going to be two points of application here for us for how we are to live in light of this. It said in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So he starts out with, be a people of prayer, uh, and I want you to pray for all. I want you to pray for everyone. This is not going to be very controversial. Pray for everybody. Not a problem, right? Who does that include? Let's keep reading. For kings and all who are in high positions. Prayer for kings. 
all people in high positions and civic authority. Now this would have been controversial. This would have been challenging because do you know who this would have included for these Christians? This would have included people like Nero. People like Nero, known for killing Christians in some of the most horrific fashions possible. Burned alive at a stake. And Paul is saying indiscriminately, I want you to pray for kings, even kings like Nero. Does that mean that I want you to be in alignment with Nero and agree with Nero? Absolutely not. Does it mean that I want you to go and endorse Nero? Absolutely not. But the command to pray for Nero goes nowhere. Bring this forward to today. But, which, by the way, where, where, where do you think Paul is getting this kind of language about how we're to be praying for all kings in high positions? Jesus, Matthew 5, 44 Pray for your enemies, even those who persecute you. He, he's applying passages like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, where Israel has been taken into exile in Babylon, just destroyed, ripped apart. And God says, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to work for the shalom of the city, the complete and total human flourishing of the city, spiritual, economic, all of it. And I want you to pray to the Lord on his behalf. He's applying, he's bringing them forward, applying it to this church this context in his day. What does that mean for us? Here's what it means for us. It means Christians were to be people who prayed for Barack Obama and for Donald Trump. Does that mean you have to agree with either one of them? Absolutely not, but the imperative to pray doesn't go anywhere. Do you have to endorse either one of them? Absolutely not. Is the command to pray for them still there? Absolutely what are we to be praying for? Well, in light of the passage, at minimum, that they would come to know that Jesus loves them and died for them and is there to stand in the gap for them. But it probably includes wisdom as well. It means that we're to be people who pray for our congressmen and Houston City Council and for the HISD school board. It is not Democrats pray for Democrats, Republicans pray for Republicans. We are to be people who pray for all. All. We're going to be people who pray for all. So be people of prayer, a people who pray for all, including kings and those, who's high, those in high positions. But there's also how we're to live. And this is what he says. Because what I want you to do, I, I want you to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified. This is how I want you to live. Why? Because this is the marker of a community of people, people who have been captivated by grace, humbled by grace, who marvel at mercy and grace that has overflowed to them. What this does not mean is that you have to sit there passive in the face of injustice. What it does mean is that you don't blow up on social media every time you get offended by somebody's post. It does mean that we're not the angry, you've attacked who I am, and so I'm going to go into a rage all of the time. Humble, peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified in every way. Not in most ways, in every way. This is a community that is a persuasive community. Like this kind of life, peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified, you're not going to find that anywhere. No, no raging, peaceful and quiet. Peaceful and quiet quiet. In the middle of this ancient world, 
with a church that Paul is writing to, marked by persecution and persecution that was to come, Paul is concerned that they would be a persuasive community in how they live and how they pray and who they are. Be a persuasive community. See, the, the, the truth of Jesus is not ours to make so, but we do get to live in such a way that we make the truth of Jesus compelling, persuasive, invitational, apologetic. It's not ours to make Jesus true, but we do get to live in such a way that he is seen as compelling because he came to save sinners. Like you, like me, like everyone we know. Came to save sinners. This is the kind of world we all want, peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified. It's the world we want. Let's live it and let's be it. Our neighborhood parish is meant to be small communities practicing how to live like this, reorienting our lives together as a community around the way of Jesus. This is who we're meant to be because salvation is not salvation uh, apart from being saved into a kingdom, a kingdom where its citizens follow the example of our Lord, peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified in every way. So what's the action item with this? What, what, what are we supposed to do with this? I think that if we were to ask Paul, he might say this, start here. Just marvel at grace. Marvel at the grace that you've been given. Look at what has flowed out from Calvary to you and marvel at it. Open the Bible, look and read about what Christ has done for you and marvel at it. Look at one another, marvel at the grace that's been given to you. Just marvel at Him and what He has done and watch that change you and your community from the inside out. Because He didn't come to make good people good enough came to save sinners, and that's worth marveling at. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the men, women, and children in this room. Would you help us to be a community of people who really do marvel at what your Son came and did for us, who marvel at the reality that your mercy has been poured out on us? Would you captivate our hearts with that? Would you change the way we live and change the kind of community that we are? Help us be more and more of a people marked by peaceful, quiet lives, godly and dignified in prayer, prayer for all. In particular, and especially people we disagree with. Make it so of us. Make this so of us. We're asking you to do it. We know that apart from your mercy and your grace, it will not ever happen. And so we're asking. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen.